0: Well, we are in Orlando at the 2023 ARI show, and I am joined by Dan Cook from Southwest JCB. Welcome.
1: Thanks. Good to see you again and be with you again, Mark.
0: And the key word is again. So you are actually a returning guest. So you should be an expert now at this podcast.
1: Yes, it's exciting to be back and it's cool to see your setup continues to expand. And um, I'm looking forward to talking about something new with you. Honored to be a returning guest. So thank you for having me.
0: So have you been to the ARA show much before?
1: Believe it or not, after 20 years in this business, this is my first ARA.
0: Wow, massive, okay.
1: Yeah, so I got a lot to take in, a lot of floor to cover. Probably going to see quite a few people that I know here from days gone by, but super super excited and looking forward to this.
0: What was your first take when you walked in?
1: Um, Massive trade show, it's kind of what everybody has kind of said it looks like when you show up. There's a whole party rental side of the business, which I know very little, if anything, about. And then there's the heavy equipment side, which is certainly where my background is. So it's cool to see some of the brands and the evolution of the product that I've been away from for a number of years, um, mostly due to my time at baseline. But nonetheless, it's definitely a large floor and quite a bit of stuff to go and see and Uh, track down old friends so definitely trying to to attend
0: all the networking events whenever you can absolutely massive opportunity there
1: for sure so
0: just to catch the audience up so you have a lot of experience uh, working through Sunbelt and then you had some time at at baseline but today you're at Southwest JCB so maybe just want to give a bit of a rundown on who Southwest JCB is
1: yeah absolutely so Southwest JCB is a JCB branded or flagship dealer it's privately owned and We operate in four key states, Arizona, Colorado, um, New Mexico, and Southern Nevada, and we go to market with the dealer model to service and support the JCB product. Um, We also carry a DynaPak line, and then there's a variety of small tools, um, you know, Milwaukee drills. Um, concrete supplies. Um, but the cool thing I think about what we do is we don't just work on the JCB branded equipment that we sell. Um, we get into supporting a lot of large national account factory direct customers with any of their fleets. So JLG and Genie Manlifts, um, other brands of telehandlers. There are dealer networks for other competitive pieces with the JCB line. Um, so we don't see as many John Deere backhoes as an example, Uh, but our team of skilled trades at each of those facilities are pretty well versed in in resolving technical problems, service calls, machine breakdowns, et cetera, uh, with pretty much anything that a rental company would have and operate in their fleet, and therefore, by extension, the end users that own and operate their own equipment, we service and support those um, just the same.
0: And so, so what's your current role and sort of what attracted you to the company?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a great follow-up, Mark. Uh, my current role is I'm the VP of operations. So the facility managers or the branch managers in those four markets all roll up to me. Um, much like what we talked about initially at a, the first go-round with the podcast, I do see my role as more working for them than they work for me. Um, so, I spend my time um, weekly traveling to each of the facilities and I will work with the teams on their processes, their national account customer base that's bringing us machines for repair, supporting the sales cycle. Um, my counterpart Chris Brogus oversees our sales efforts, but as they have deals coming in the pipeline, operations of the dealership has to make sure that the right machine is available and ready when that deal closes. Um, so, a lot of it is very similar to my experience at Sunbelt, where um, we have p we have um, POs to write, we have workflows to oversee. Um, we have various functions similar to the, the way a rental company operates, and so all of that ultimately rolls up to me. Um, it is a little different, because in the dealer world, warranty is its own department, parts are their own department, service is its own department. Um, so I'm still getting used to having you might say three folks at each of the facilities that have those responsibilities versus um, in the rental space that all kind of just funnels up through the branch manager. Um, but nonetheless it's 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 a good use of my skills. it's a good use of my passion I'm trying to help our team become great versions of themselves all in the pursuit of serving the customer base.
0: very nice. and so, Maybe to break it down simply, because there's guaranteed there's someone out there that goes, "What is a dealer?" So when you say you're a like you're a JCB dealer, what does it actually mean?
1: Um, so the the flagship brand is JCB, and different than the factory, we don't manufacture any of the machines. We have to buy them uh, from the factory from JCB North America, and then we carry that cost of inventory in our attempt to sell the machines to the end user. Um, being a dealer really means that we get to be the, the advocate for the customer, so if there are warranty issues or if there are um, improvements that the customer would like to see in the machine or form factor changes, we are one of the many conduits to funnel that feedback up to JCP North America um, to drive continuous improvement within the product, to provide um, guidance on what level of service and support that we need to offer to the end user. Um, and just really be the go between um, to form that local relationship with the end user buyers of these machines. Mm.
0: And is there a deep penetration into the rental market specifically?
1: There is. JCB has done an awesome job of capturing market share within the North American major rental markets United Rentals, Sunbelt Rentals, Equipment Share. Um, H&E equipment, even Sunstate equipment, all are are household names within the rental industry and they all utilize their factory direct relationship to source various machines and product lines from JCB North America. Our role really comes in to process warranty repairs for those teams to um, be the, the deeper dive subject matter expert in the service and repairs of those machines when they're out of warranty, be the local parts distribution arm of the business. They still have the option to buy their parts from JCB North America. However, with our footprint in four major cities covering four major markets, there's a source of immediate availability. And in the rental industry, um, it's, it's oftentimes a, a very fast-paced, I-need-it-as-soon-as-possible type of a, a service mm-hmm. response. So with our network, we're able to serve those customers through the parts warranty and service side of the business.
0: And then the parts side must be a, a massive component to your business here because people want to buy parts for their own machines. They might want to get some servicing done. You obviously have your own techs that are doing things. Uh, how much of the parts area is like a key focus for the business?
1: Um, it's a huge focus and it's an area that it's one of the, the, the departments that I'm tasked with overseeing and um, driving it, efficiencies and driving the right inventory onto the shelves. Um, JCB North America provides a substantial amount of information about our order history from JCB North America. We of course have our own um, sales history to the end user customer, and that's one of the key things to make a dealership profitable is to blend those two sources of data, understand what's moving, what's not moving, what's your machine park look like in the area you cover so you have the right components on the shelf, whether it's consumed through the service department um, that we repair and install a, a component or it's sold over the counter to the end user, mm.
0: and then from a, a product standpoint, like what's the breadth of machinery that JCB, or Southwest JCB uh,
1: provides? Absolutely, no. I think it's a great, um, it's a great product breadth as you put it right it's a uh, it's an offering that allows us to sell almost anything to any type of a customer so there's an aerial access line with electric scissor lifts and some engine driven boom lifts there's a full suite of compact equipment between um, compact track skid steers compact wheeled skid steers compact excavation equipment um, compact telehandlers Then you get into the full-size telehandlers, and JCB manufactures the best telehandler on the market. Um, I can say that pretty comfortably and confidently with my time at a rental company, and JCBs were just bulletproof in that product line. Um, So a full range of telehandlers, um, and then we start getting into larger excavation equipment. There's a variety of backhoe sizes, makes and models. We get into steel tracked, um, traditional excavation equipment. And um, the one I'm probably most excited about is the power generation space, because that's my, my background primarily. So five unit sizes within the power generation space, um, ranging from a 56kw up to a 500kw. Um, and then the dealership itself also gets into the DynaPak compaction line, um, paving and asphalt contractors and scopes of work that utilize that is a, uh, it's a big bolt-on addition for us. Um, And like I mentioned, there's some construction supplies and hand tools. Um, And we also represent the, I believe it's pronounced LG compressor line. Um, I'm not familiar with it. It's new to the dealership. Um, So I do have some learning to do there. But being able to offer towable portable air compressors of a variety of sizes really gives us um, an ability to sink our teeth into any potential need that a customer would have.
0: So so with those product lines that you just spoke about, is there any add-ons that you provide over the top of that?
1: Um, so, one of the cool features that you might call an add on is our LiveLink service offered on the JCB machines. And LiveLinks is essentially a telematics suite um, it's the hardware, the software, the customer portal. And it's, it comes standard with the, the JCB product line. Um, and it also, when you buy a machine from us, it comes with a three year subscription. So what this allows both us as the internal user and the third party contractor or customer as the external user, what it allows us to do is see the operating conditions of that machine. Things as simple as fuel level, battery voltage, engine performance parameters, um, so we can We can remotely recognize when there's a deficient condition that needs attention. It also provides a much deeper dive into, for example, on a generator, what the current is on each of the legs of the output um, of the power supply. It allows us to read diagnostic trouble codes. So if we have a machine that goes down, we can see why it went down from a DTC standpoint. It's a really cool tool that can save customers money. Um, So one way it can do that is if they have a generator that's in service over a weekend at an unmanned site, because they're just not working and the generator shuts down, it can notify both the dealership and the customer that the generator went down with LiveLink, We can also see, did somebody push the e-stop? Did it run out of fuel or did it have a mechanical breakdown? So we can then communicate with the customer. If somebody pushes the e-stop or ran out of fuel, you don't necessarily need to contact the dealer to go out on a weekend to try to resolve save money that. On service save money on service. But if there's a diagnostic trouble code, then you can make a decision on do we need to go out there and respond to that, um, or does the customer just want to wait till Monday? So it facilitates the exchange of, of value-added information um, that otherwise you can't get unless you are at the generator it allows for remote access and
0: potentially give the technician the right parts correct when they go out as well correct
1: we can see if a battery has stopped taking charge over time for example so if they do ask us to go out and perform that work we know we need to bring a battery with them Mm. with the service technician
0: and so with those product lines you mentioned the word electric so what other electric lines do you currently have within jcb
1: yeah it's a it's a really cool thing to talk about um so JCB has the E-Tech line, and within that product family, there are um, the electric aerial access platforms, um, but that's not necessarily the innovative side of introducing battery technology into these machines. That, that technology has been around for a while. We have a compact mini excavator, a 19C, which is a uh, first to the market. It's a really awesome machine that we can use in indoor Um, Things like select demolition applications, underground applications um, where emissions just become a a big component of something to have to manage. Um, There is an electric site dumper. I think about it like a tracked Georgia buggy that works off of batteries. So it allows, again, if you're doing um, concrete work inside and you don't want to have a gas engine running inside the building to deal with the fumes, the electric option um, allows you to, to, to operate that machine indoors. Um, there's a compact electric telehandler, a 50520. So it's a, a great 5,000-pound capacity electric forklift. Operates rough terrain. One of the inherent benefits of the electric machines is they are significantly quieter. So there's a component to safety that goes into an electric machine. Um, You don't have to deal with the excessive noise that comes with a diesel or a gasoline engine. And of course, there's the environmental benefit. If we cannot burn fossil fuels through the engines, then we're incrementally reducing the carbon footprint Mm -hmm. within the construction industry and equipment operation space.
0: And then obviously, when you start getting to machinery that's more high powered on certain applications, uh, is there any other innovative areas that you've been working on to try and, uh, I guess, bring out the latest technology?
1: Absolutely. Um, In 2020, JCB globally explored the use of hydrogen fuel cells and um, a 200 class excavator was test fit with a hydrogen fuel cell. Um, The machine was entirely reworked to accommodate the the new componentry that goes into it. And um, even though the project consumed a significant amount of time and resources, um, it really helped help JCB understand the application of hydrogen in that type of a use case. Now, if you think about where an excavator gets operated, it's operated in a dirty, dusty, rough, aggressive type of an atmosphere. And a hydrogen fuel cell is very, very sensitive to um, those types of conditions. And so while the technology worked and the machine was an absolute success from a does it function and do what we ask it to do standpoint, yes. But when you start looking at the practicality of the fuel cell in that application, what it takes to service that machine, whether it's an end user or or a dealership service model, the fuel cell just started to show that it's not the the, the most appropriate and suitable application. So one of the things that JCB learned is that with transient load profiles, which would be If you think about an excavator's scooping and digging cycle, as the operator is extending the digging boom down and into the earth, it's a low load, and as it engages the ground and scoops and lifts the earth, it's a high load, that's a transient load. The hydrogen fuel cell was just not best suited to handle that type of a transient load. And we would see transient loads in all other types of applications that a fuel cell might get fitted into. A telehandler booming up to drop a load of cinder blocks um, and place it on top of a scaffolding, from a no load to a fully loaded condition, that's a transient load. So one of the ways to overcome that is to utilize a battery technology that interfaces with the fuel cell and the battery would handle that initial surge or inrush of that transient load, but there's no place to put the batteries in an excavator that's also got a hydrogen fuel cell. So the form factor of the host machine starts to inhibit the usefulness of a hydrogen fuel cell. But hydrogen is absolutely a technology that JCB believes in. And as a fuel source, it absolutely has a future. So when you think about the other way to generate energy from hydrogen, you combust it in an internal combustion engine.
0: So this is a big difference here. So rather than converting, actually building a brand new engine. That's basically what JCB went through. And this is like a first that that's occurred in the world, yeah?
1: Yes, it absolutely is. Very, very proud of the the brand that I represent, that they're pioneering this charge to create um, a need and a use case for hydrogen as a fuel source. Hydrogen conversion has been around for quite a while, converting uh, either a gaseous or a diesel engine. And it's just inherently starting from the wrong point, And so it's fraught with problems. And that's why that, that Engineering hasn't necessarily taken off and become a staple in that internal combustion space. What JCB has done is over the last, call it 18 months, has started with the principles of an internal combustion engine. And other than the bottom end of a rotating crankshaft with connecting rods, has completely built this engine from the ground up. So things like the valve train, the air train and the mixer bringing the hydrogen into the engine, Going back to 2020, as the fuel cell technology was determined to not be the the best path forward, JCB started to develop from the ground up a hydrogen combustion engine. Different than what's been tried over the years to convert a gaseous or a diesel engine to burn hydrogen, this engine really only shares the bottom end uh, of components and similarities, a rotating crankshaft with connecting rods. Things like the pistons, the valve train, the intake system, the turbo, even the chemistry of the oil that goes into a hydrogen combustion engine, that's all brand new developed technology that JCB has invested a substantial amount of engineering thought, money, man hours, development research into that engine. And I'm very, very proud to say that as of January of this year, We have produced 50 of these engines, and we've installed them into prototype machines to prove the use case that they are viable and they are efficient and they are something that can gain traction in the market uh, as the hydrogen economy continues to keep up.
0: That's super exciting, isn't it?
1: It really is. And so when you look at a telehandler and a backhoe, staples on a construction equipment site, staples in a rental company fleet, staples for equipment owners. Even though we've we've made great progress in the development of the engine to consume the hydrogen, it doesn't do us any good if the use case and the user interface of that machine is so materially different than its diesel counterpart that the operators don't want to use it. So as much time and effort that, that has gone into developing the engine, the user interface is almost more important because if the operator feels that the machine is more sluggish and he can't dig the number of cycles or he can't lift the same amount of weight with the same sensitive placement with a telehandler, it's not gonna get adopted. Mm. Um, There's even uh, pictures and media of Lord Bamford using the fuel bowser that's been created to fuel these machines and it's no different than wet nozzling diesel into a diesel tank same concept, the same use case, the same steps are taken to bring hydrogen from the fuel bowser into the fuel tank of the hydrogen fueled machines. So
0: that was going to be one of my questions. So, as a, I'll sit in the case of someone that's looking to acquire one of these machines. Uh, they used to buying a diesel machine, being able to have maybe a fuel fuel tank and then pump diesel into the machine and then operate. Uh, let's say I buy one of these machines. Like, what do I need on my job site to operate one of these hydrogen powered machines?
1: Um, so you do have to have a source of hydrogen, and one of the one of the areas that the hydrogen economy has to continue to evolve in is the supply chain and the distribution networks. Hydrogen is a, typically an industrial gas that's consumed at an institutional place like a refinery or a pharmaceutical plant or someplace that doesn't move around. In a construction site, when the job is done, everybody packs up and goes to the next place. So today... Um, As hydrogen becomes commercially available, the the fuel Bowser that JCB has developed will handle 16 tanks of hydrogen for either the backhoe or the the telehandler. And from the entrance of the job site, this off-road Bowser is designed to take the fuel to the machine. Um, The hydrogen economy, as it continues to mature and as it continues to develop its distribution and supply chain, that bowser would be filled, call it, at the front of the job site to then drive into behind the fence and into the job site to deliver that fuel in the last mile segment of the fuel's journey to the machine.
0: Mm. So it (coughs) it definitely still needs to be that distribution network that needs to be set up because, like, if you went to any job site today and you spoke about hydrogen, most of them are going to be pretty confused on how they're even going to get that fuel cell to the job site. So it's, a, it's an important factor for education as well.
1: Absolutely it is. And the product's not commercially available today. It's still in its research and development phase. It's still in the, the overall what else has to happen to it to become a viable alternative to diesel. However, if you look at in 2021, um, I believe the statistic If you look at in 2021, there were under 10 hydrogen centric projects in the UK and today there's north of 40 being developed. Um, Similarly in the US in 2020, there were 40 hydrogen stations around the country and today in North America that's estimated to be pushing over 200 so the opportunity for hydrogen to become a viable fuel source, I think it becomes a question of chicken or the egg. Do you need to have push-through demand from the hydrogen supply chain, bringing it closer and closer to where it can be consumed? Or do you need to have pull-through demand by creating the demand or creating the appetite for it through things like our telehandler and our backhoe and the fuel bowser to where it pulls the hydrogen infrastructure closer and closer to those machines?
0: Mm. And then on the hydrogen itself, so It's obviously in an area that's that's, uh, good for the environment, Um, but there is different types of hydrogen, which I think is important to cover. So can you talk about the different types of hydrogen?
1: Yeah, this is a pretty cool topic, um, in my opinion, when you really zoom out away from the construction equipment because the benefit that hydrogen has over any fossil fuel is no carbon in, so therefore there's no carbon out. There is zero carbon emissions with hydrogen as a fuel source. So uh, when you really start to look at the, the hydrogen economy and where does hydrogen come from, the most ideal hydrogen on the color spectrum is called green hydrogen. And green hydrogen is simply um, the splitting of water, H2O, into its core elements, oxygen and hydrogen. And with green hydrogen, um, you do that through a process called electrolysis. You use an electrolyzer. And um, the byproduct of that is you release oxygen which is a completely harmless gas. Um, through that process though, there are precious metals that are used in these electrolyzers and you have to have desalinated, deionized, very, very pure water. And it's just very expensive to bring those raw materials um, to bear in that electrolyzer. As published in February of 2023, researchers and engineers in the chemical engineering department of the, at the University of Adelaide, an Australian university, They have discovered a way to use seawater or salt water and non precious metals inside of these um, electrolyzers. Specifically, cobalt oxide and chromium oxide are the two metals that they use to generate green hydrogen out of salt water. And that's a huge step forward. Salt water is probably the most abundant resource, if you think about it, in the world. And within water is an almost infinite supply of hydrogen. Salt water can be found along every country that has a coastline, and it's very efficient to bring it to the source of the, it's very efficient to bring it to an electrolyzer because it is so abundant across the world. Differently than having to use very pure, deionized, desalinated water with precious metal electrolyzers, this now puts hydrogen, and not just any hydrogen, but green hydrogen within reach once that technology is scaled. A more common way that we can find hydrogen, uh, a more common way that we can source hydrogen is called gray hydrogen. And within the natural gas refining space, um, you can strip hydrogen out of a natural gas fuel source, and the byproduct is CO2. So now we're back to carbon, carbon dioxide. So while hydrogen at the tailpipe is a very clean emitter, when it is deemed and classified as gray hydrogen, there's a significant carbon footprint that's associated with it. Now, you can sequester that carbon dioxide emission, and when you do, that gray hydrogen can now be classified as blue hydrogen, but there's still an economy of scale that goes uh, against the commercial viability of hydrogen because that's a very expensive process to capture that carbon, and inject it into the earth um, as the oil and gas industry does today. Um, And it just, it makes hydrogen commercially out of reach at today's commodity prices. Mm. There's other colors of hydrogen. It just depends on where the electricity for the electrolysis process comes from. You have yellow hydrogen, which is tied to nuclear energy. Um, And there's a couple of other colors that are become less and less appealing from a green footprint standpoint, because they cost more energy, they cost more dollars than what you get out of it in terms of equivalent energy.
0: It's amazing, sounds like we have to go to Adelaide to do a podcast.
1: Well, (laughs) I think it would be good as the hydrogen economy takes off and as the technology becomes scalable and within reach and commercially viable for, for the hydrogen economy understanding how we can get hydrogen through their processes and others, it would be very valuable for the industry to understand the mm-hmm. hydrogen supply chain.
0: Okay, so so what is the next step to actually getting this, these hydrogen powered machines to market?
1: Well, one of the exciting things that's happened um, very recently is that in the UK, the machines that have now been built as prototypes have been approved for testing in real world conditions on actual construction job sites. While we've done extensive testing within uh, the JCB engineering departments and kind of had controlled environments where we recognize use cases and user interfaces and how the machine just feels when we operate it, we're now going to be able to seek live, real customer feedback on what works, what doesn't work, how is the machine performing compared to the comparable diesel counterpart. So from there, that will steer the next steps that JCB undertakes with the development of not only the engine, but the use case inside the various machines.
0: So I saw online that JCB is actually displaying a hydrogen-powered engine at ConExpo this year in Las Vegas. Like, Can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Very exciting things are going to be on display and coming out at ConExpo in Vegas in a few weeks. This will be the first U.S. public display of this hydrogen engine technology. We will also have our battery engine technology on display, along with our tier four final diesel product line uh, with the engine technology on our road to zero.
0: So after our last podcast, we kept in touch, and I saw you you took a little bit of time off after your previous role. So so what what was that all about, and what did you learn through that process?
1: Yeah, I appreciate you keeping tabs on me while since our last podcast, Mark. So it's it's been nice to have people in the industry that have uh, looked after what I've been up to. Um, I did take some time off. I took about eight weeks and um, I had some, my, both of my parents are still alive and they've had some health issues and there's just been some things that I needed to help them work through. Um, They're both doing wonderful now and I'm happy to report that maybe the resolution came around a little faster than maybe I initially thought it would. So after about an eight week sabbatical, um, uh, after leaving Baseline, I was able to sync up with some good friends of mine that work for and operate Southwest JCB, and I went back to work.
0: Must have been a bit of a like a clarity moment as well, yeah. Like actually having time to think, take take that back, spend it with family, play with the trains. Absolutely, <laughs>
1: I, I was able to start my uh, my model train layout. Um, it's something my son and I enjoy, and my brother Trey uh, got me into when I was probably four or five years old and so spent a very long week with him um, he flew over to Dallas and uh, he flew over to Fort Worth and we went at it very hard trying to build the foundation for the model trains I got to spend a good bit of time with my son as well it was during the summer and so he and I got to um, he and I got to spend more time together which was great we of course, worked on the trains. We took some father-son trips. I took him to his summer band practice each morning and picked him up in the afternoon. So that was really wonderful. And then my daughter, um, she and I also got to spend some time together. So rather than her running errands with my wife, she was able to run errands with me. And so it was just really nice um, to have the downtime and, and focus on family.
0: Yeah, very nice. And speaking of young people, so let's say there's somebody that's finishing school or college or community college or whatever they're doing and they're looking to get into a trade or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. what advice would you have to that person starting their career? It doesn't have to be in the equipment rental industry, but just in general.
1: I would say that you don't have to have a perfectly clear, rock solid picture of what you want to do in your career. But when you're drawn towards an industry, it's less about the specific role that you'll fill on the team. And I think it needs to be more about the culture and the, the, the environment in which you can learn how to apply your trade craft. And that would be true for an entry level accountant as it would for a technician, as it would for somebody wanting to break into sales. You gotta look for people that are gonna invest in the time, invest in your well-being to really blossom into a young professional. And then from there, as you see opportunities to take on challenges, the risks are so low, even though we might think that they're really high. But the risks are so low because there's probably not a problem that you can create or be a part of that somebody can't help you solve. Mm. And that's where growth happens. And that's where people really start to discover who they are under pressure and who they are. Uh, and maybe even who they want to be so take those risks and surround yourself with people that you think are going to invest in you because in time before you know it it'll be your turn to invest in somebody else that's amazing love it
0: well dan thank you for coming on the rental journal podcast again
1: mark thank you so much for having me it's wonderful to see you here at ara in orlando and i'm looking forward to seeing what the show has in store for us both